Hello everybody and welcome back to Cold Case Chase. A new marathon is about to begin, so go ahead, buckle up, take a seat, and get ready for some cold cases. Just remember that on July 26th, we will be dropping Season 4, Episode 1, and we'll be going every other week until the end of the season. Also, be sure to check out A Briefcase on TikTok. you can get me anything. It's been a long day. Yeah, it seems like it. You look like a guy who's been through a lot of stuff. Penny for your thoughts? Have you ever heard of anyone just disappearing into thin air? You know, heard some stories from time to time from folks, but personally I've never seen it myself. Why? Why do you ask? Well, you better make me that drink. This one's a long story. Hello, my name is Matt and welcome to Cold Case Chase, a show where I recount unsolved and cold cases. Today on our pilot episode, we will be taking a look at the disappearance of Brian Schaefer. Although it may not sound like a menacing case, it surely is a creepy case nonetheless. Let's go ahead and dive right in. On Friday, March 31st, 2006, Brian Schaefer returned home to his family on spring break from Ohio State University. That night, Brian went to dinner with his father at an Outback Steakhouse, where his father would later say, I don't know why Brian would go out that evening. He seemed exhausted from studying so much. After dinner with his father, Brian would meet with his friend and fellow college student, William Clint Florence to go bar hopping to celebrate their temporary freedom from school. Their first stop was at the Ugly Tuna Saluna in Columbus, Ohio. Derek had invited his brother and his brother's wife to tag along as well, but they were already seeing a comedy show at the Funny Bone Comedy Club. Near 10 p.m., Brian would call his girlfriend, Alexis Wagoner, who was in Toledo visiting family. The two had planned a getaway to Miami the following week on Monday. After the call, the two men went bar hopping in the area, going to places such as Bar 23, Brothers Bar, and the Short North Tavern, having a shot at each place. A few hours later, Brian and Clint would meet up with Meredith Reed, a friend of Clint's. The three would then drive back to the Ugly Tuna Saluna and attempt to end the night off with one last round of drinks. At 1.15 a.m., cameras would capture the trio riding the escalator up to the bar. A little time passes in the bar, and then Clint and Brian are captured outside the bar on security cameras looking and talking to two women. These women would later be identified as Amber Ruick and Brighton Zatko. According to Brighton, Brian was extremely flirty with her and even started kissing the woman's neck. Brighton slipped Brian her number and then walked back into the bar. Brian is then caught on the cameras once more at 1.57 a.m just barely in the corner of the frame. 
this would be the last time that Brian Schaefer was ever seen again. Schaefer was apparently known at the time for separating from the group for short periods of time, so at the moment his friends weren't worried. However, at 2am when the bar closed, Clint and Meredith would not find him. They assumed that Brian had drunkenly stumbled back to his apartment a few blocks away, and they went home. Brian missed his flight to Miami on Monday, and was declared missing by the authorities. The police searched the camera footage and found that there was no footage of him ever leaving the building. The footage also showed that no one inside the building may become a suspect, because everyone was accounted for. The police then searched the entire media area around the bar his apartment, and even the city's sewers for clues, but it came to no avail. No valuables were missing from Brian's home. Even his car was still parked next to the bar where he disappeared. Alexis, Schaefer's girlfriend, would constantly call Brian's phone in hopes that he would pick up. Most times, it would be sent immediately to voicemail. Hey, this is Brian. Leave your message after the beep. But on one such occasion, it rang but no one picked up. The wireless provider, Singular, would claim that this was a glitch in the system and that it happened regularly. Police weren't able to track the phone due to the GPS being turned off, but a cell tower did pick up a ping a few towns over. Singular also claimed this as a glitch. Brian's father also did some investigating himself. He visited a psychic who told him that Brian's body was in the Olentangy River. Brian's family would search the banks of the river for weeks. No evidence was ever found. And now that we've heard all of the story, Let's go ahead and jump on into some theories. Our first theory states that Brian disappeared on his own accord. This theory states that Brian himself is responsible for leaving that night at the bar. Brian was under a lot of stress from college and medical school. That, coupled with his mother's death only three weeks prior to all these events, could be a possible motive for him leaving his life behind. More evidence supporting this theory is that the fact that Brian would just ask Alexa to go away with him to Miami and to move on and to find someone else according to Alexa. Brian was no stranger to disappearing. Like I said earlier, he would disappear for short periods of time from his friend groups, from his family, and he would just be on his own. Brian was even late to his mother's funeral because he was so distraught. Could this night have been one where he just left it all behind? This theory, however, is extremely flawed. Brian's bank account and belongings were never touched while he was missing, but he did get a hefty sum of cash from his mother's will. So unless he truly went off the grid, this theory is very unlikely. Our second theory is that Brian committed suicide and the police covered it up. 
Just like I explained in our first theory, Brian was under extreme amounts of stress at the time. That coupled with the alcohol could have pushed him over the edge. Depression from his mother's death could have also been a contributing factor. This theory states that Brian could have snuck by the security cams on the second floor and leaped from a non-surveillance service door that led to a construction site and is now buried underneath the current building there. Evidence supporting this claim is the fact that Detective John Hurst stated that Brian got exited out when referring to the case on the Comeback Podcast. The wording he chose looked very interesting and is looked at very heavily in this theory, and a possible cover-up could be in play. The construction site was a very big investment in the county at the time, and a suicide or a dead body in the site would be extremely bad press. However, a crack in this theory occurs when you remember that the search dogs searched the area many times and picked up no trace of Brian. This third theory is a bit interesting. In the 90s and early 2000s, a theory swept the nation of victims of accidental drowning, called the Smiley Face Killer. This theory claims that college-level, popular young men were killed and thrown into rivers across the northern United States, often after leaving bars. This killer but leave behind the mark of a smiley face near the dead bodies. Brian Schaefer fits this description perfectly. This theory, however, was never taken seriously by police due to lack of evidence. First off, Brian's body was never found, so they do not know if it was in water at all, or if he's even dead. Secondly, according to the FBI, the smiley face killer is just a hoax. But who knows? People lie, don't they? Our fourth and final theory circulates around Brian being murdered. Police resorted to questioning many people who were at the bar that night, including Clint Florence, Brian's friend. When Clint was asked to perform a lie detector test, he outright refused and immediately got a lawyer. Up until then, he was very cooperative. According to his lawyer, Clint has said, He had told officers everything he knew, and he didn't want to do it again. This theory gains even more traction when you add the fact that Clint was one of the last people to see Brian alive. Many of Brian's family don't trust Clint, and think he knows something, and isn't saying it. Now that you've heard all the theories, Chasers, which theory do you think is the most likely? Nearly 15 years later, Brian is still missing. The police 
FBI, and his family all believed him to be alive. This strange and tragic occurrence of the disappearing bar hopper will forever be in the minds of many. If he's still out there, we hope he comes home. And if anyone knows anything, please report it to the proper authorities. Wow. What a hell of a story, man. You know, that Clint fella sure gives me the shivers, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Smiley face was the one that creeped me out the most. Um, one more for the road? Yeah, sure thing, man. Let me go grab some more from the back. No. Matt, I'm starting to come up with my own theory here. What if... Uh, hello? Matt? Hello? Thank you everyone for listening to the first episode of Cold Case Chase. Thank you to all the lovely voice actors who helped me put this all together. I have to go for now, but I'll see you next time on Cold Case Chase. Hello? Is... is anyone there? Hello, my name is Matt, and welcome to Cold Case Chase, a show where I recount unsolved and cold cases. Today, we will be discussing one, if not the most famous cold case in the history of mankind, Jack the Ripper. One of my personal favorites to read up on, and a gruesome story all around. Without further ado, let's get on in. London in 1888, more specifically, the East End of London, was known for crime and poverty. 
Due to this, many young women were driven to prostitution to make ends meet in the quiet city streets. Five of these women would meet their end on these streets to one man, Jack the Ripper. However, there are theories that say that this psychopath killed upwards of 10 women. With each kill, the Ripper would only grow in popularity, being covered in newspapers and word of mouth. This one man would go on to become somewhat of the boogeyman of the Whitechapel district, and his reign of terror was only beginning. August 31st, 1888, at 3.48 a.m., Mary Ann Nichols, a local Lady of the Night's body, was found in a bundle by Robert Cross and Robert Paul. She was found lying on her back, throat cut and disemboweled. It had been determined that the body was fresh and had been only there for 30 minutes. The cuts were clean and applied with almost surgical accuracy. This would be the first instance and victim of the madman known as Jack the Ripper. The Ripper could not satiate his lust for blood for very long. Only eight days later, on September 8th, 1888, an elderly man named John Davis stumbled upon a gruesome scene at 29 Hanbury Street. The body of Annie Chapman was found with her throat cut and her womb missing. This led investigators and police surgeons to believe that the Ripper could be a doctor. Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores, and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work, and I want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in the ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue, and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. <laughs> The next job I do, I shall clip the ladies' ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly. Wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack. The Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. 
wasn't good enough to post this before I got all that red ink off my hands. Curse it! No luck, Jet. They say I'm a doctor now. This letter was sent to the Central News Agency by none other than our famed killer on September 27th, 1888. This would be the first time that he would ever be referred to as Jack the Ripper, and the name stuck. The letter was not released until October 3rd and fell under much criticism in the public. On September 30th, only three days after the letter was sent, another body was found. Louis Diemschutz found the body of Elizabeth Stride, with her throat hastily cut. Investigators and ripperologists say that Diemschutz may have been mere meters away from the ripper because of how fresh the cut and the body were. However, the life of Elizabeth Stride would not be enough to calm the bloodlust in the ripper's heart. I couldn't do my work, stupid. Wasn't enough. Curse it. I need, need more blood. I need more. I will take. Forty-five minutes after the body of Elizabeth Stride was found, another body was found in Mitre Square, only a short walk away from where Stride was discovered. The second victim was Catherine Eddowes. She was severely mutilated. She was beaten in the face, her kidney was removed, and her uterus was missing. Police swarmed the area looking for anything out of the ordinary. But there was only one clue to be found. A piece of Catherine Eddowes clothes found in the doorway of an apartment block on Goulston Street. This clue would puzzle both police and ripperologists alike because this route would take him directly towards the first murder scene of Elizabeth Stride. An area filled with police and people on the lookout for a murderer. A possible theory for this is that the Ripper could have lived somewhere in the East London area, like a monster among men. I was not codding, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jackie's work tomorrow. 
double event this time. Number one squealed a bit, couldn't finish straight off, had not the time to get ears for police. By the way, thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. This letter was received by the media the morning after the double event, giving credibility to its source, as the killings hadn't been in any papers or media yet. The police spent weeks searching the East End's worst slums attempting to find any evidence of a killer, but their search was in vain because they found nothing. On October 16, 1888, George Lusk, the president of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, received a letter. The committee was formed by many rich businessmen to help assist the police. The letter read as follows. Mr. Lusk, sore? I sent you half the kidney I took from one woman and preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate. It was very Nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a little while longer. Sign. Catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. From hell. This letter was sent in a box that contained half a human kidney. The kidney was believed to be the missing one from Catherine Edo's body. However, this letter was debunked due to it being a prank from a medical student. Not one in good taste, I might add. This also shows the state of London at the time. They weren't taking the serial killer very seriously. Sir, please tell us what you saw. The sight that we saw, I cannot drive away from my mind. It looked more like the work of a devil than that of a man. Then, my God help us all. The fifth and final victim was a woman named Mary Kelly. This one gets a bit gruesome. Her body was found inside of her apartment on November 9th, 1888. She was discovered by her landlord's assistant, both skinned alive and disemboweled. Ma'am, please tell us again, what did the Ripper look like? He was about uh, 30 years old, uh, about one and three quarter meters tall. He had a fair complexion and a mustache. And what was he wearing when you saw him last? A dark hat and a dark overcoat. It's hard to believe that someone who sounds so sane and frighteningly normal could be capable of such monstrous cruelty. 
And now, with all of that said and done, let's get into our theories. Now, there are many theories for Jack the Ripper, but today we're going to be focusing on just three. Our first theory is that Jack the Ripper wasn't Jack at all, but rather Jill the Ripper. This theory suggests that the reason Jack was never caught was that the police were on the lookout for a man, when it could have been a woman the entire time. A midwife would have the anatomical knowledge and some suggest that the reason that most of these women were missing wombs was due to failed abortions. However, this theory falls apart when you look at the police's profile on Jack, and you think about all the cruel acts that this woman would have to do for failed abortions. Our second theory is a favorite to many. The suspect's name is James Maybrick. He's a rich cotton farmer from Liverpool, and he could be our ripper. The reason Maybrick is such a popular subject is because of one piece of evidence, a diary found below the floorboards of his estate in Liverpool. This diary has specific and in-detail recountings of each of the five canon victims of Jack the Ripper. It is even signed, I give my name, that all know of me, so history do tell what love can do to a gentleman born. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Along with this evidence, a gold pocket watch was discovered with the initials of the five victims scratched on the back, along with the words, I am Jack, and J. Maybrick underneath it. However, this theory begins to crumble when we look at the man who discovered the diary, Mike Barrett. Barrett, a scrap metal dealer, admitted that he fabricated the story about the diary, which he later recanted because he didn't want the media's eye due to his failing marriage. So, I'll leave this one up to you. Is Maybrick the murderous Jack the Ripper? Or no? Our third and final theory is that Joseph Barnett is Jack the Ripper. Barnett is particularly suspicious because he lived with the final victim, Mary Kelly. Barnett lived all over East London, which means he would know the area well enough to sneak around and know which streets get quiet during the day. Barnett was a fish porter, giving him some crude anatomical knowledge. Obviously not much, but still some. He also matches the description given to the police to a T. Barnett was close to Kelly, so most prostitutes would recognize him, which he could have used to his advantage to surprise them. It should also be noted that most of Barnett's friends referred to him as Jack. This theory states that Barnett was in love with Kelly and strove to get her off the streets as a prostitute. He killed the first few women to show Mary how dangerous prostitution could be, which did work. Only for a short while, though. Kelly returned to the streets to make ends meet. One night, when Kelly came home 
with two other prostitutes. Barnett lost it and began arguing with Kelly to the point that he broke a window out of pure anger. Barnett would pack his bags and move out, and only around a week later, Mary Kelly would be found dead in her apartment. Barnett was also questioned by police, but released after a few hours. Also, some more to chew on. The murders of Jack the Ripper stopped after Mary Kelly. This points to Barnett almost finishing the job that he set out to do in the first place. Get Mary off the streets. So who do you think it was? Jill? Maybrick? Barnett? Maybe the world will never know, and this case may just stay cold forever. Thank you for watching the second episode of Cold Case Chase. I'd like to thank all of the lovely voice actors who helped me along the way and were so lovely to work with. With everything all said and done for this episode, I'll see you next time on Cold Case Chase. exactly what we needed. No work, no podcasts, just us and nature. Where did you get the cabin anyway? I just got one in Cali. Oh wow, really? Where in California? Oh, um, well, uh... Matt, where in California? Okay, just don't be mad at me, please. Fine, okay, whatever. I don't care. Just get it out of your system already. Wait, like, for real? Like you'll let me do it? I guess so. This isn't even a vacation anymore. So you might as well run the script by me. Okay, just remember, you asked for this. Hello, my name is Matt, and welcome to Cold Case Chase, a show where I recount unsolved and cold cases. Today, we will be covering the gruesome murder at Ketty Cabin in California. This horrendous crime and possible cover-up are as recent as 1981. Which means there could be a killer, or killers, out there still. That being said, let's get into it and see what's happening in this neck of the woods. The small town of Ketty, California. Population, 66. It all started here, in cabin 28. Four people were murdered in this small cabin in the woods on April 12, 1981. Sheila Sharp awoke on the morning of April 12th in her friend's cabin. She took the short walk back to her apartment and opened the door. What she saw would stick with her for the rest of her life. Blood was splattered on the walls and the ceilings. 
bloody knives and a bloody hammer in the room, and not to mention the bodies of her mother, Sue Sharp, her brother, Johnny Sharp, and Johnny's friend, Dana Wingate. Sheila would also notice that her younger sister, Tina Sharp, was missing. However, in the other room, her two younger brothers, Greg and Rick, were both still sound asleep, along with their friend, Justin Smart. You see, Justin's mom and dad weren't doing too well together, so Sue Sharp had decided to start marriage counseling Marilyn Smart. Justin frequented the Sharps' cabin to play with the younger boys. Obviously, the police were called and an investigation followed. After these murders, the police had determined that their main suspect was Justin Smart's father, Marty Smart. Marty had apparently found out that Sue Sharp was counseling his wife, Marilyn, and he didn't really like that that much. He went ballistic, and after that, he left for Reno, Nevada, coincidentally, right after the murders took place. The police had also determined that there must have been an accomplice due to the scale of the killings. So they also suspected Bo Bobede, Marty's roommate and ex-con as an accomplice. After these revelations, and the feeling of having this murder be an open and shut case in the air, the investigation stopped. Many believe that this sudden stop could be due to a citywide cover-up. Former Sheriff Doug Thomas was accused of covering up the case due to him and Marty being quote-unquote close. There was no shortage of suspects, but suddenly now everybody 35 years or so later have all figured out what happened and that all of the investigating officers were corrupt. It's laughable is what it is. Martin Smart was not a friend of mine. At one point, he and his wife were having marital problems, and they came to my office when I was sheriff and wanted me to counsel them. It is to be noted that Sheriff Thomas was not a marriage counselor at the time, and Marilyn Smart says that she did not recall any meetings with Sheriff Thomas regarding her marriage. However, let's go back to the 1980s for one last detail in the case. Nine one one. What is your emergency? I'd like to report a tip. Can I get your name, sir? No names. Just the tip. Tina Sharp's skull. It's down here by Camp 18. Floating in the river. Is there any other information you can give, sir? Sir? <laughs> On the third anniversary of the murders, the bones of Tina Sharp were found 50 miles away at Camp 18, just south of Ketty. What is strange to note about this call is that the caller identified the skull as Tina's and not just some bones. Some people speculate that this could be the murderer calling in the tip to the police. In 2013, current Sheriff Hagwood and investigator Mike Gamberg picked up the case in hopes of solving it nearly 32 years later. Sheriff, the Kitty murders are often looked on as a cover-up by police here. 
Would you care to comment? That discussion will continue to be there. We have to stay focused on what we're doing now and how it will bring us closer to answering the questions of who and why. It has brought to light some amazing timelines, histories, and what some may call coincidence, and others may look at more accusingly. I don't put anything outside the realm of possibility. When the two reopened the case, many new revelations were found in a very short amount of time. The biggest of those coming from the old case files that were tucked away from the 80s. Gamberg found a letter from Marty to his wife Marilyn, which was written after the murders took place. The letter read as follows. I've paid the price for your love. So now you tell me we're through? Great. What else do you want? When shown this letter, Marilyn denied ever receiving it. But she did identify her former husband's handwriting, only adding more confusion to this case. Along with this letter, the voice recording to the 911 tip for the skull of Tina Sharp was also found in the evidence boxes. All these tapes haven't led to anything yet, they're still under review and being used as a reference for suspects. One last big break in the case came when Mike Gamberg went to go talk to Marty's former therapist in Reno. Ah, Detective Gamberg, thank you for coming. No problem. I'm sure you're a busy man, so let's just get right down to it. What did Marty tell you? Well, he came in for a session and it started out normally. But as we went through, I saw something was bothering him. So I prodded a little harder, and he confessed. To everything. Everything? Yes. He even told me that he killed Sue and Tina, but he didn't have anything to do with the boys. He even said that he had to kill Tina so that she couldn't identify him because the poor girl watched the entire thing. I, I, I don't know why the authorities haven't used the testimony against him. I told the sheriff about it. Well, it looks like we have something small to go on. The most recent development as of writing this was a steel claw hammer that matched the description of a possible murder or torture weapon that was found buried by a lake near Ketty. It is still undergoing DNA testing as of right now. It was found by someone who was using a metal detector and just walking nearby. And that was certainly not the treasure that they were looking for. Now let's hop into some theories. But this segment of theory time is going to be fairly short as there are not very many possibilities of who could have done this. In fact, I think the perfect quote comes from Sheriff Hagwood himself to sum it up. As for the Marty and Bo stuff, it's a theory we're working on, to the degree possible, to conclude or dismiss. There is a disproportionate amount of evidence and information that tends to point in that direction. However, there are people locally who know more than they've said, and I believe we've identified some of them. And we know who they are, and we know where they are. And I have the confidence that they either participated after the fact, or they have first-hand information. As for the other people that Sheriff Hagwood mentioned, they are still yet to be publicly identified. However, he does have the confidence of his peers, along with Sheila Sharp, 
one of the last living members of the Sharp family. With all that said, there is no way to get a 100% clear answer right now. With the passing of Marty in 2000 and only little bits of evidence coming out at a time, this case may remain cold for a much longer time than anticipated. Unless one of the remaining people who may know something decide to come forward. Wait, what? You're telling me there are people still alive who could be involved in this? Yeah, pretty creepy, huh? And we're still going there? Oh, I see what you mean. Uh, yeah, let's just go somewhere else. We could always go visit my parents. Hun, I think I'd rather take my chances in Ketty. Thank you for listening to the third episode of Cold Case Chase, the cover-up at Ketty. I'd like to thank Coag Music for writing the sinister dark ambient background music that was heard in this episode, as well as all the lovely voice actors who participated and acted in this. Thank you to everybody who also supports the podcast. It means a lot. I'll see you guys next time on Cold Case Chase. All rise for the Honorable Judge Rookstar. Order. I said order. Hi, my name is the Honorable Judge Matt, and this is Cold Case Chase. On today's episode, we will be talking about Lizzie Borden and her bloody axe. But is Lizzie really our suspected killer? Let's go ahead, find out, and jump right in. We'll start this story with a bit of background. In the late 1800s, the Borden family was one of the wealthiest families in the state of Massachusetts, with their net worth being over $1 million in today's world. However, even though the family was better off than most, Mr. Borden still forced his family into being frugal with their money. They ate a mutton-based diet and cut expenses wherever they could. Mr. Borden then married a woman named Sarah Morse and together they had three children, Emma, Alice, who unfortunately died as a child, and finally, the youngest, Lizzie. When Lizzie was only two years old, her mother passed away, leaving her with no mother figure besides her older sister. Only three years after Sarah's death, Mr. Borden remarried to a woman named Abby Durfee. Both of the children, however, weren't too fond of her, calling her by her first name or Mrs. Borden, as she would be later known. Lizzie was often described as a pious woman who feared God and was kind to others. However, she was known to have rapid mood swings, which could get violent. Now that the background has been set, are we ready to examine the events of that fateful day? 
Yes, Your Honor, I believe we are. Good. Then let's get started. On August 4th, 1892, in Fall Rivers, Massachusetts, the lifeless bodies of Andrew and Abby Borden were found hacked to death at around 11.15 a.m. The supposed murder weapon was either a hatchet or an axe. Andrew Borden was hit 11 times while his second wife, Abby, was hit 18 times. Besides the victims, four other people lived in the house at the time. Lizzie Borden, Emma Borden, their uncle John Morse, and the maid, Bridget, or Maggie Sullivan. However, Emma Borden was out of town for the event of the killings. The murders are suspected to be a crime of passion due to nothing being stolen, missing, or there being a struggle for an entrance. So let's go through the timeline of events. At 10.40 a.m., Mr. Borden laid down for the last time on his living room sofa to take a nap. At the same time, Mrs. Borden is believed to be at the doctor's office. Maggie was upstairs in her room, also trying to go to sleep. And in the backyard at around 10.50 a.m., Lizzie Borden went into the barn and is not accounted for until 11.15 a.m. when she comes back into the house because she heard a quote-unquote heavy fall and a subdued groaning. Lizzie then stated that she walked back to the house but noticed that the screen door was open when she had sworn she had closed it on the way out. Nevertheless, she entered the house and saw her father on the couch. His face turned to mush. Quick, father's dead. Somebody's come in and killed him. Mr. Borden was believed to be asleep when he died. There was no struggle, no fight, just death. Lizzie then calmly asked Maggie to go find the doctor to help, which she then went and did. They're right this way. Oh, Maggie, you've brought the doctor. Thank goodness, I was getting worried. Yes, but we cannot find your mother. Have you seen her? (laughs) Oh, Maggie, I'm almost sure I heard her come in. Go upstairs and see if she is there. Mrs. Borden? In the guest bedroom, Mrs. Borden lay on the floor, with her head bludgeoned in, presumably by the same axe that killed her husband. As stated before, this was no burglary or a one-off serial killer. This was someone close to the family. And today, we are going to try to figure out who. Today, we are going to hear theory, I mean, eyewitness testimonies of three of the suspects presented in the case. Let's go ahead and bring the first one forward, shall we? I would like to call John Moss to the stand. Good 
Sir, please identify yourself and how you relate to the Bardens. I am John Vinicum Morse, brother of the former wife of Mr. Borden and uncle to their children. Mr. Morse, you may begin. Well, I don't really have much to say. I was staying at the Bordens for a short while. I wanted to be around my nieces, as well as some of the other relatives I have in town. Andrew was nice enough to lend me his guest bedroom to use. As for the day we lost my brother-in-law, I can't be of any help. I was out all morning visiting one of my relatives, along with the doctor. He's ill and I wanted to go see him before he passed. The doctor? Yes, sir. So you're saying, during the murders, you claim to be with the doctor. The one who was with Mrs. Borden, as well as Maggie and Lizzie when the body of Mr. Borden was found. Well, uh... I've heard quite enough, Mr. Morse. You may leave the stand. John V. Morse is a very popular suspect as of late and definitely had the time for the murders on that day. As you'll see later, he also revealed some sensitive information to another one of the suspects in the case, which could have been a ploy to pin it on her. However, there's no clear motive for why he would kill the Bordens, so he's overruled. Please bring forward Bridget Sullivan. Please state your name and what you do for the Bardens. I'm Bridget Sullivan and I'm the Bardens' maid. Miss Sullivan, please begin your testimony. Well, it was a warm summer day and I had just finished the chores for the morning. I hadn't seen all the Bardens that day, but I knew that both Lizzie and her father were home. I went into my quarters to take a nap. I'd almost fallen asleep when I heard Lizzie cry for help. I ran downstairs as fast as I could, and when I saw Mr. Borden, I almost fainted. Lizzie was there in her nice blue dress, sobbing. She had been in the barn all morning, but there were no stains on her dress. I ran to go get the doctor, and when I returned, we went upstairs and found Mrs. Borden in the guest room. Dead. You said Lizzie's dress had no stains on it? Yes. None at all. Interesting. Thank you for your time, Miss Sullivan. You may leave. Maggie Sullivan, the Borden's maids, is a suspect in this case because of a theory that was brought forward involving her and Lizzie conspiring together. The theory states that the two were lovers and had a secret relationship. One day, Mrs. Borden found out, and they killed her in John Morse's bedroom to frame him. Then. They killed Mr. Borden so that there would be no witnesses. There is very little evidence for this theory, however. Some look at the fact that Maggie very clearly stated that Lizzie had no stains on her dress, unprompted, while others look at Lizzie's later life when she admitted to having crushes on actresses. Either way, I think this theory is very far from the truth. Please bring forward Lizzie Borden.
Miss Borden, please stay- This is ridiculous. I am Lizzie Borden, daughter of Andrew Borden. I can't believe I am even sitting here to testify my innocence. This is- Miss Borden, please keep calm. There is a lot of evidence piled up here, and not in your favor, I might add. Wildly inconsistent answers in your testimony, a burned dress that you claim to have spilled paint on, and not to mention the purchase of a house in Fall Rivers that you bought quite quickly after the death of your parents. Are you trying to say I'm guilty, Your Honor? Not for now. Right now, I'm still stating the evidence. Miss Borden, if you will, we have a few questions for you. Now, on the day before the murder, it was reported that you had asked for the drug Prussic Acid from your local pharmacist. For everyone not familiar with the liquid, it is a poison. Do you know anything about this? No, I don't. Now, did you know about your father's will? And that you and your sister would be getting a large sum of money? No, I didn't. Now, are you quite sure, Miss Borden? That house in Fall River seems to say otherwise. <sighs> yes, I did know. Who told you about it? My uncle, John V. Morse. How did you feel about your mother dying? She was not my mother. <clears throat> Mrs. Borden's passing, along with my father's, was very upsetting. You refer to your mother as Mrs. Borden? I do. Several years back, she requested that my father buy her sister a house, which he did. My father rarely spent money on his own children, but for her, he would do anything. Hmm, Lizzie Borden, what do you need that house for? Please, Father. With a possible motive at hand, and other circumstantial evidence, it seemed that Lizzie Borden was the perfect killer. A grudge against her mother, a grudge against her father, and she was at the right place at the right time. However, in the end, Lizzie Borden was never found guilty. Well then, after we've heard everything, I believe we have a verdict. In the case of the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden, you, Lizzie Borden, are... Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Cold Case Chase. 
Thank you to Coag Music for supplying the music in this episode, and thank you to all the wonderful voice actors who helped me along the way. Make sure to go check them out in the description. Also in the description is our Discord server. If you want to feel like part of our community, come audition for some of the pods, and just be a general member of the community, we would love to have you there. Also, keep an eye out for our newest and latest show coming up very soon, Case Closed, hosted by Shane. Also, if you're using Apple, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps us out a lot, get recommended to other people. But if you're not going for a five-star review, make sure you recommend the podcast for everyone that you know, because we would really appreciate it as well. Also, if you'd like to become a member of the podcast and support us, there's a link in the description to our membership prices. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on Cold Case Chase. This is your captain speaking. We're cruising at a nice 1,800 feet right now. We're directly on course, and your seatbelt sign has been turned off, so feel free to roam about the cabin. If you take a look out to the left side, you'll see the beautiful country of Malaysia. And over to the right, we have some bats and some lightning. Wait, what? Hi, my name's Matt, and welcome to Cold Case Chase, a show where I recount unsolved and cold cases. Today we will be talking about Malaysia Flight 370, an avian mystery that took place roughly seven years ago, and is still considered one of the biggest mysteries of the sky today. Let's go ahead and dive right in to this creepy case. Malaysia Flight 370 was a scheduled flight on March 8, 2014 that was supposed to go from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, China, a short five and a half hour flight. However, this flight would never make it to its destination and in turn become a missing persons case with over 200 people going missing. Malaysia Flight 370 was operated by 10 crew members and two pilots. Those pilots being Zahar Ahmad Shah and Farik Abdul Hamid. Captain Shah was 53 years old and had over 18,000 hours in flight experience. And Captain Hamid was 27 and had roughly 2,700 hours of flight experience. The airliner that they were flying had been in operation for around 11 years and had no prior history of mechanical issues. On that fateful day, Flight 370 departed a bit late, leaving at 12.42 a.m. and clearing to rise to 1,800 feet. At this point in the flight, one of the captains, presumably Captain Shaw, communicated back to air traffic control in Kuala Lumpur to acknowledge the message. Verbal contact on the plane continued until roughly 1.19 when Malaysia Flight 370 would send its last verbal message to air traffic control. This is Captain Shaw calling for ground control. We have departed for Ho Chi Minh City and will be arriving at 03.25 AM. Good night. Bird, flight 370, what is your current altitude? 
Flight 370, come in please. Flight 370, please respond. After this message, right over the Gulf of Thailand, Flight 370 would vanish from both radars of Kuala Lumpur and Ho Chi Minh City. This meant that the transponder was not working and was not sending signals to either air traffic control. There were no storms that night on 370's path, so that means that if the transponder was not malfunctioning, it was physically turned off by someone on board. However, military radar was able to keep track of the flight, and here's what happened after Flight 370 went dark. The plane began to turn eastward, towards the Riau Islands, but then made a sharp right turn southwest and back towards Malaysia, fluctuating in altitude by a few thousand feet. At 1.52, the flight was detected to be just south of Panan Island. Then, it began flying along the Strait of Malacca, the last certain known location of Malaysia Flight 370 was just east of Nicobar Island at 2.22 a.m. This was when the plane was out of reach of the Malaysian military radar. However, it was still sending hourly satellite communications, but these satellite locations may not be 100% accurate. It was determined that after being lost to the military radar, Malaysia Flight 370 took a turn south and kept flying that direction for five hours. The satellite company Immersat was sending hourly status requests, which 370 responded to. At 2.39 a.m., Immersat attempted to call Flight 370. The phone rang, but there was no answer. Another call was made at 7.22 a.m., which also went unanswered. After this call, the Malaysian government announced that they had lost the aircraft, and a search and rescue began. However, at this point in time, it is believed that the plane was actually still in the air. A logon request was sent to Immersat, which could only mean one of two things. A power error had occurred, or a software error had. If you're keeping track, the plane has already been flying for well over seven hours at this point, which means that fuel was either running extremely low, or it was non-existent. Immersat sent one last status request at 9.15 a.m., which went completely unanswered. Because it went unanswered, it is suspected that the plane had crashed somewhere between 8.19 and 9.15, somewhere in the Indian Ocean just west of Australia. The search for MH370 was on. 19 ships and 345 sorties searched the area for months, but nothing. No evidence of a crash was ever found. Until, in July of 2015, a piece of wreckage washed up on the shores of Reunion, a small island off the coast of Madagascar. The wing flapperon of MH370 was identified and taken into testing, where it was discovered that the plane had crashed completely vertical. This means that the plane hit the water full force that there was no chance for survival on impact. 
A few other pieces of debris ended up washing up onto the shores of Africa. But in January 2017, the search was called off. And now that we have the full story, let's hop into some theories. I'm not gonna lie to you, there are some very outlandish theories for MH370. However, as much as I'd like to discuss aliens or wormholes or some other form of supernatural event, I'd like to keep this very based on the real world. So we're going to avoid those topics for now. However, if they do gain enough traction, I have no problem doing a separate section on more supernatural causes for these cold cases. Now that that's out of the way, let's go ahead and jump right in. Our first theory is that Malaysia Flight 370 was hijacked by passengers. Specifically, two Iranian passengers with fake passports who raised quite a bit of suspicion among investigators. They had come to Malaysia only a week beforehand, and only had one-way tickets, so you could see where this was going. However, it was determined that they were only asylum seekers fleeing from the Middle East and not a part of a terrorist organization, because no terrorist organization had ever claimed Malaysia Flight 370 as their own, with any substantial proof to back it up as well. For our second theory, we'll be going from a passenger hijacking to a crew hijacking. A theory arose that a possible crew takeover was possible. Captain Shaw and his crew were heavily looked at. The transponder turning off is one of the biggest pieces of evidence pointing towards the crew, as someone would have had to manually turn that off. It is also widely speculated that the plane's course was manually changed by tampering with the autopilot. However, after nearly 200 interviews with friends and family of the crew, no significant leads were found. Captain Shaw and Captain Hamid's home flight records were also examined and also turned up nothing. If the crew did sabotage Malaysia Flight 370, they did a good job of it. Malaysia Flight 370 will remain aviation's greatest mystery for a very long time, unless further evidence is found. The family and friends of the roughly 300 people on board still live with unanswered questions to this day. And let's hope that someday, those answers can be found. This is Channel 3 Nightly News Now with your hosts, 
Kaya Birch and Matt Rockstar. And I'm Matt Ruckstar. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Cold Case Chase. It really means a lot, and thank you to the wonderful voice actors who helped me along the way. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure if you're on Apple, leave a five-star review. And make sure to recommend this podcast to any family or friends that you think might like it. Also, keep an eye out on the horizon for the new show coming to this podcast feed this coming week. Case closed. We're looking forward to sharing it with you. That's all for now, so I'll see you next time on Cold Case Chase. The year was 2021. We had just spent a full calendar year in a lockdown state and I had a job to do. It was a job only fit for myself because I know that I have a particular set of skills. Those skills would allow- Hey honey, what are you doing? Nothing, nothing. Don't, don't worry about it. Just, uh, I'm, I'm recording, okay? I, uh, I, I can't use this now. Uh, roll the intro. Hello everyone, my name is Detective Matt and this is Cold Case Chase, a show where I recount unsolved and cold cases. Today, we will be talking about Hollywood's most famous cold case, the Black Dahlia. Now, this episode will be covering some very uncomfortable subjects, and it can get very dark at times. So, I thought I'd give you guys a warning at the very beginning that we will be covering some very touchy subjects. With that out of the way, let's go ahead and dive right into this creepy case. Now when we get to the shoe repair shop, you need to be on your best behavior. Got it? Yes, ma'am. I'll be good. Now let's walk on this side of the street, darling. We don't want to cause a crash. But Mama, I want to see what's that over there. What is it? I don't know. It looks like a mannequin. <gasps> a mannequin? I want to see. Back here this instant. Do not dangerous to just across the street without looking. Mommy? 
Who is she? Oh my god, she's real. It was January 15, 1947. The police got a call from a lady named Betty Bessinger while she was on her way to a shoe repair shop with her daughter Anne. On the way, they spotted something in an empty lot. That something turned out to be someone. And that someone turned out to be Elizabeth Short. Betty called the police, and when they arrived, this is what she had to say about the matter. I glanced to my right, and I saw this very dead white body. My goodness, it was so white. It didn't look anything more than perhaps an artificial model. It was so white and separated in the middle. This body would later be identified as 22-year-old Elizabeth Short. She was naked, lying face up in a strange pose with her arms over her head and her eyes wide open. The body had been scrubbed and completely drained of all blood. Some flesh was also missing from her body. Short also had three-inch slits on her face, on the side of her mouth, creating a permanent smile. But the most horrifying part was that her body had been cut in half at the waist, and it was clear that the body had been moved there after she was killed. After the body had been identified as short by the FBI, a flyer ran rampant all over LA and Southern California to try to get more information. Extra, extra, do you know this girl? Get reward, any information helps the police. The Flyers didn't do much besides get more eyes on the case and reveal more information on Short herself. Short was originally from Massachusetts, but moved to Hollywood to get her start as an actress. She worked a waitressing job, who struggled to get acting roles. With a Hollywood hopeful star fading too soon, and how grisly the scene was when she was found, it definitely intrigued people. Newspapers then got involved and nicknamed the woman the Black Dahlia. Due to Short being seen multiple times wearing slick black clothing and her jet black hair. Come in. Oh. Hey, Doc. You find anything else from the Dahlia's body after your autopsy on her? I did. And without a doubt, I can say that whoever did this was a sicko. What do you mean, Doc? Well, it seems that the Dahlia was alive a lot longer than we had thought. And I am certain that she was tortured and bound. But the most puzzling part of it all is this. These cuts are surgical. Hmm. A doctor, maybe? This complicates things. When Short's autopsy came back, even more gruesome details of her deal came forward. Officially, 
short, died of a hemorrhage and shock. But with marks on her wrists, ankles, leg, and neck, it was believed that she had been tied up and tortured. And those slits in her mouth, those were revealed to have been made when she was alive. She had been beaten over and over again in the head and had received a concussion. With the Dahlia case making pages upon pages of headlines, it was only a matter of time before the killer reared his ugly face again. And that came when the Los Angeles Examiner received a letter with some of Short's belongings in it, and also a letter. The letter was from somebody who claimed to be the Black Dahlia Avenger, and they used cut-up newspapers and magazine letters to write in it instead of actually writing it. It read as follows. Los Angeles Examiner and Los Angeles Papers. Here are the Dahlia's belongings. Letter to follow. Black Dahlia Avenger. The belongings found inside the letter were Short's social security card, her birth certificate, pictures, and an address book with some pages missing from it. The missing pages from the address book were thought to hold secrets of who the killer could be, so it was likely someone that Short knew. Hundreds were questioned about Dahlia, including 75 men from her address book. But most of them said that they only went on a brief date with her, and it ended there. Then, they interviewed roughly 300 USC medical students to go after the angle of the killer may having some medical knowledge. But nothing came of that either. Now that we've heard the facts of this case, what do you say we go ahead and interview our last three suspects for the day? Couldn't agree more. All right, let's see who we have here. His name's Robert Manley, former army musician. He was the last one to see Short live. Well, let's go in and see what he knows. Hello, Mr. Manley. We have a few questions for you. And if you cooperate, we might let you go. Understood? Yes. I'll tell you anything you want to know. Good. So let's start with an easy one. When did you meet Elizabeth Short? It was, uh, a couple months back. I saw her at a bus station late one night. Hey, doll. Come ride with me. You've been waiting forever for that stinking bus. Oh, come on, babe. What's with the cold shoulder? It's a free ride. No funny stuff. Fine, but no funny stuff. Got it? Okay. Now, what was your relationship with Short? Well, for about the next month, we went out. It was nice. We went to diners, the movies. I was falling in love with the girl. Okay. Where did you last see Elizabeth Shore? Well, Lizzie's place kicked her out. She didn't have anywhere to go, so she called me. Robbie, I need your help. 
with me. I need a place to stay. We went to a hotel and stayed the night together, but nothing happened. After that, we drove to L.A. Drop me off at the Bitmore. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Okay, here we are then. Bye, Lizzie. Call me if you need anything. And that's the last time I saw her. All right, Manly. If you follow me, we're gonna go take a polygraph test together. I got just a few more questions for you. After Robert Manley was interviewed, he would go on to take two separate polygraph tests willingly and pass both of them. Then, detectives gave him sodium pentothal, which at the time was believed to be a truth serum, and Manley still held firm and told detectives what he had always been telling them the entire time. Manley would unfortunately die when he accidentally fell in his apartment on January 9th, 39 years to the day from when he last saw Elizabeth Short alive. All right, detective. Who's next? Well, next is a man named Joseph Dumay. Says he was blackout drunk with Short just a few days before she was found. Also says here in his file he actually confessed, too. Sounds kind of shaky to me. Hmm. But you got my interest peaked. Can anyone confirm that he was with Short that day? Unfortunately, no. But he is military, so his movements on and off base can be tracked. You go in and interview him, and I'll go make a call to a superior officer. All right, Joe. No funny business now. You give us what we want, and we might let you go. Got it? I'm never leaving this hellhole. Oh yeah? And why is that? Because I killed her. The Dahlia's blood is on my hands. No, it's not. I just got off the phone with your SO. You were on base that day. Get out of here, Dumay. This is really getting tiring at this point. Says here we only have one suspect left, too. And who's that? Says his name is George Hodel. Wait, you mean Big Shot George Hodel? Must be. Says here he's a venereal doctor who's got a boatload of cash. Uh, he's got connections, too. He's apparently got dirt on everyone, from local sex workers all the way up to the top of the food chain. Huh. That's odd. He seemed to have breezed through medical school, too. I got some eyewitness testimony that Hodel and Dahlia were spotted at a hotel in downtown L.A. Also, if he's a doctor, he would have had the skill to make those surgical cuts. And these handwriting samples, they match pretty well. And his car matches the make and model of the one seen by the scene of the crime. We actually have evidence here that George was also a huge scumbag. His daughter Tamar told police that he would throw huge parties with all the Hollywood big shots. And he would sell off his daughter for nude photographs and sex at the age of 13. Not only that, the man was believed to have partook in the same pleasure himself. 
He went on trial for incest charges, but was acquitted of them. Well, looky, looky here. We got some evidence that says... Some old tapes. Let's give it a listen. Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary because she's dead. This is the best payoff I've seen between law enforcement agencies. I'd like to get a connection made in the DA's office. <laughs> wait, 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 what was that? Why wasn't that used as evidence? It says here that the authorities dropped him as a suspect in 1950. It says that the tapes apparently cleared his name. I can't believe it. The LAPD might be corrupt. George Hodel is the most famous suspect from this case. No one believes that he is the Black Dahlia's killer more than his own son, Steve Hodel, who has taken soil samples from his father's backyard, old photos that may be the Black Dahlia, as well as stories from his father to prove it. George Hodel was also under suspicion for another murder that took place three weeks after the Dahlia case. Hodel would then flee to the Philippines where yet another case would rear its ugly head, and George Hodel would only live a half mile away from where that murder took place. The DA at the time, Stephen Kay, would speak on behalf of himself and not on behalf of the DA's office, and he would say the following. I would have no reservations about filing two counts of murder against Dr. George Hodel. And that's about all we know up until this point. Steve Hodel is working tirelessly, day and night, to try and convince people that his father murdered the Black Dahlia. Did George Hodel murder Elizabeth Short? We may never know. And that's the scary part. Extra, extra, read all about it! <laughs> Hello, and thank you for listening to this episode of Cold Case Chase, the dissecting of the Black Dahlia. Thank you to all the lovely voice actors, including Andrea and Noel, who played the two children actors in this episode, and all of the other actors, respectively. Thank you to Coag Music for supplying some of the music heard in this episode. And I would like to apologize really quick for some of the audio in this episode. I changed my mic about halfway through uh, because I recently got my new one, which you are hearing me talk on right now. Um, however, I digress. If you would like to audition for parts in Cold Case Chase or the sister podcast, Case Close, hosted by Shane, go ahead and follow the link to the Discord where you can audition for parts or just be a part of our community. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast, any little bit helps, you can do that in the description as well by following the link for that. However, that's all for me today. Thank you guys for joining me, and we'll see you next time on Cold Case Chase.
Jill Dando. 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 Was killed in cold blood today. Right in front of her home. Showing that even you could be killed in the place that you feel safest. And in broad daylight. Are we even safe anymore? Hi, I'm Jill Dando, and welcome to Cold Case Chase. Hello everyone, and welcome to Cold Case Chase, a show where I recount unsolved and cold cases. On today's show, we will be talking about the tragic passing of Jill Dando, one of the best personnel in this field and a success until the end. With all of that out of the way, let's go ahead and dive right in. Let's start off this story by exploring the life of Jill Dando. Jill Wendy Dando was born on November 9, 1961, in a town called Weston-Super-Mare in the UK. She studied and graduated from the South Glamorgan Institute of Higher Education and went on to pursue her dream of being a journalist. Both Jill's father and her brother worked at a local newspaper called the Western Mercury, both as journalists. They helped Jill get her start into journalism here. Only a few short years later, Jill would get her first break when she was hired at the BBC to do a radio broadcast for the news. Jill would show how hard she could work again by making the transition from radio to television in that same year. She would begin to present the news for the BBC's Southwest Channel, and she did that for the better part of three years. After those few years, she would go from presenting local news to national news for the BBC, where she would present the BBC Breakfast Time, BBC Breakfast News, the 1 o'clock news, and the 6 o'clock news. This is where Jill Dando would become a household name in many UK houses. Jill would later go on to host her own show called Holiday, where she would travel to other parts of the world to experience another culture and learn about the other ways of life. Then, in 1994, she would find her most notable role where she would co-host the show Crime Watch. Britain's most important unsolved cases, now live, and you can help solve them. I'm Jill Dundo, and this is Crime Watch. Crime Watch was a TV show that aired in the UK that was hosted by Jill Dando and her co-star Nick Ross. The show would attempt to help solve unsolvable crimes. Jill and Nick would show off evidence on the show in hopes that someone would call in and help police solve the crime. What's important about that is quite a few of the crimes presented by Jill on the show would lead to arrests, maybe even giving her a few enemies in the process. 
Jill would go on to win multiple awards, including BBC's Personality of the Year Award in 1997. Then, in 1999, Jill would get engaged to the love of her life, Alan Farthing. Jill's life couldn't get any better. But all of that was about to change. On April 26th, 1999, Jill Dando was returning home from her fiancé's house by car. She rarely went to her house in Fulham anymore because she would usually spend time with her fiancé at his house. Fulham was a bit wealthier of an area, so most of the crimes reported were robberies, if there were any crimes. She would return home every once in a while to maintain the house as it was on the market to be sold. However, at 11.32 a.m., Jill Dando was walking up her steps on her walkway to her front door when someone snuck up behind her and pushed her to the ground. No funny business. Stay down, Dando. Jill Dando would let out a scream and was then promptly shot in her head just above her left ear. Nearly 15 minutes later, Jill's body would be found by a neighbor named Helen Doble, and she would then call the 999 line. Hello, ambulance. I'm walking along Gowan Avenue. It looks like, um, there's somebody collapsed, and confidentially, it looks like it's Jill Dando, and she's collapsed, and there's, there's lots of blood. Can you approach and check that the lady's breathing for me? She doesn't look as though she's breathing. She's got blood coming from her nose. Her arms are blue. I just need to find out if she's breathing. Is the lady's chest going up and down? Oh my god, no. I don't think she's alive. I'm sorry. Please. As you can hear, Helen Double identified Jill Dando almost right away. Helen had also said that she had thought Jill had been stabbed because of how much blood that there was at the scene. Jill would be declared dead at the hospital from a fatal gunshot wound. There were no witnesses to the killing of Jill Dando. And what's even more strange is that no one heard the gunshot that killed her. The only testimony that was ever scrounged up was from one of Jill Dando's other neighbors. I heard a scream and that was it. It didn't sound like a scared scream, it sounded like like when you scream because you haven't seen someone in a while. So I wrote it off and I didn't think anything of it. Besides, even if I did try to look, there would be a giant tree blocking my way. However, I did see someone running from Jill's house. He had a brown overcoat and he looked like he was in a hurry. After Jill's killing, a few assumptions were made on why no one heard the bullet. One was that Jill's head could have muffled the shot, preventing a very loud noise. And two, someone could have taken some of the gunpowder out of the bullet to help keep it quiet. 
so we knew we were dealing with a killer who knew something about guns. Police looked into many people who could have done this, jealous ex-lovers, enemies she made on Crime Watch, and even crazed fans. In the weeks leading up to Dando's murder, Jill had expressed unease about some people, and when the police looked into the matter, they found that over 100 people had a very unhealthy obsession with Jill Dando. However, the police finally settled on three main suspects and or theories. And here they are. Our first theory is that Jill Dando was assassinated by a professional killer. Whether the hit was called from the IRA or a London gang is unclear. But there is a small bit of evidence to back this up. In the weeks before Dando's murder, men in suits were spotted near and around Dando's home, acting very suspicious. A motive for this possible theory could have been Jill's work on Crime Watch, as I stated earlier. Putting away many members of London's gangs at the time could put a target on her back. However, this would bring these gangs into the spotlight, something gangs are not very well known for, so this theory is a tad weak. Now, when you get into the theory that someone from the BBC may have put the hit on her, that's when you get into the more believable territory. Jill had been undercover on a media case about the BBC's pedophile ring. And she was about to blow the case wide open. Someone who was involved in this must have caught wind and possibly put a hit out on her. Now that theory becomes even more believable when you see that years later, Jimmy Seville had evidence of the exact same thing piled up against him. Was this what Jill wanted to expose all those years ago? It could possibly be. But let's head on to our second theory. Our second theory is that Barry George killed Jill Dando. After going through all of the potential suspects at the time, the police ended up going back through all 200 tip-offs that they had originally come through. And that's when they landed on a man named Barry George. The 39-year-old man raised some suspicion when the police looked further into him. Barry lived in the same area as Jill, and he also had a history of violence, and not to mention his previous convictions in sexual assault, impersonating a police officer, and not to mention the time when he was arrested at Kensington Palace wearing a mask. In George's possession that day were a knife, rope, and a handwritten letter to Prince Charles. Now, George was a very slippery fellow. He would often evade police by sometimes giving out fake names. And when he was arrested, he would do the same, as to not get those crimes on his personal record. Barry would even give out Freddie Mercury's real name a few times, claiming to be his cousin. So this man became suspect number one fairly quickly in the police's eye. The police would search even harder into George and find out that not only did he used to work at the BBC, but he was also a huge gun enthusiast. 
The police then felt that they had enough to go on and detained Barry George and searched his house. When they did, they found piles upon piles of magazines, undeveloped photographs, and piles of trash. Most of the magazines were ones that had Jill Dando on them, and the nearly 2,000 undeveloped photographs would end up being of unsuspecting women who George took pictures of without their permission. Among those photos was one of Barry himself in a gas mask holding up a gun that eerily matched the one that police suspected had been used to kill Jill Dando. The icing on the conviction cake came when police found a jacket in George's house that matched the description of the one that the neighbor had given. The coat was taken and sent off to go get tested, and when the results came back, it found that there was an extremely small amount of firearm residue inside the coat's chest pocket. Those molecules of residue matched those at the crime scene, and Barry George was charged with the killing of Jill Dando, where he was found guilty. He was charged with life in prison and began his long sentence in July of 2000. Now, you might be asking, Matt, I thought this was a cold case, you know, unsolved. This sounds pretty closed and solved to me. Now, now, you didn't think it ended there, did you? With most of the evidence piled up against George and the molecule of residue being so small, people had their doubts that Barry George had killed Jill Dando. In 2008, a retrial was held for Barry George, and his defense team argued that Barry lacked the intelligence to plan the murder out, let alone act it out as well. They also brought up the fact that most of the evidence was circumstantial. Even the residue was deemed inadmissible in court because of how small it was, and it could not be ruled out that it could have been from something else, such as another firearm or even a firework. With all of this piled up, Barry George was acquitted on August 1st, 2008. I'd like to leave this theory off with one quote from Barry George himself. I don't want people to say, there's Barry George, he killed Jill Dando. I want them to say, there's Barry George, he didn't kill Jill Dando. Our third theory involves a cover-up from NATO. Now, NATO is a military alliance between the US and some countries in Europe. In 1999, they illegally bombed a Serbian state broadcaster, killing 16 innocent workers. NATO stated that this bombing was because this station was spreading propaganda on Serbia's unethical war. This made Serbians angry for obvious reasons, and they wanted to take something of equal importance to NATO, the BBC. On the day of Jill's murder, there was a phone call to the BBC from someone in the Serbian regime, who did claim responsibility for the killing. However, 
we do have to question some of the authenticity of the tape because people do sometimes claim things that may not be true. You took something, something that was important to us. Now, how do you feel? Jill Dando is dead, and look how your people weep. Think of how many Serbian men and women cried that day when you illegally bombed us. You took something from us. Now we take something from you. An eye for an eye. Now, like I said, some groups do claim things that make themselves a bit more legitimate at times. However, there is some weight to this theory. Jill had angered the Serbian regime by starting a charity to help support the people affected by the war that was spurred on by the Serbian regime. However, the police have said that they don't support this as a legitimate theory in this case. So if the police don't, then it might not be a plausible theory. Jill Dando's legacy will live on not only because of this case, but also because of the Jill Dando Institute of Crime Science, which helps people gain careers in forensics and other methods to help prevent cold cases such as these. We may not know what happened to Jill Dando, but we can certainly learn from her and learn from the tragic events that surrounded her death. With all that said and done, I think I'll let somebody else take this final line from me thank you for listening everyone this has been jill dando have a safe evening Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Cold Case Chase. Thank you to all the lovely voice actors who helped me along the way. And thank you to everybody who keeps on supporting the podcast. I really appreciate it. However, if you want to support the podcast more, go ahead, leave it a five-star review. Share it with any of your friends. And if you want to, you can become a member slash supporter. And you can donate any amount per month that you'd like if you follow the link in the description. Also in the description, you'll find our Discord. If you want to feel like part of our community and maybe get updates on when episodes come out or you just want to be part of the community, please come join us. We have a lot of people who love talking about old cold cases just like me and just like Shane too. Speaking about Shane, uh, go follow the sister podcast as well, which comes out on this podcast feed, Case Closed. There should be one coming up this upcoming week. Also, check out Cross-Examination, which is the show that me and Shane both do together, which has some new updates to it, and is just generally a good time. Thank you all for listening once again, and I'll leave you on that. So I'll see you next time on Cold Case Chase. Previously on Sci-Fi Malady.
This is it. The command center. You sure? We've cleared just about every deck. This has got to be it. Time to make these aliens pay. Pay for all the crappy films. Pay for boredom. Pay for prodigy. Guns up, guys. Let's hope whoever it is, they don't have a pet xenomorph. Avoid the acid blood if they do. On three. One, two, three. Show yourself and eat lead! (laughs) Welcome, gentlemen. You finally found the source of your abductions, it seems. Luck? Thomas, so nice to see you again, my friend. Wait, 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 wait. Cut the sirens, cut the music or whatever we got. Cut it. You mean to tell us you've been behind our kidnappings this whole month? Devilishly clever, don't you think? Not really. You made us watch Progeny. I can't drink enough bleach. Ah, yes. That was regrettable, but I had to find a way to incur your wrath so that you would find me. But why? Why not just send a PM on Discord? Because what's the fun in that? I wanted to test your limits, push the boundaries of what you could stand. I also just really wanted to be on the show again. Uh, again, a message would have been just fine. I see you don't understand the joy of my plan. Oh, well. No matter. Have a seat, gentlemen, and we shall review a movie. You think after all that, we will review a movie with you? Where else will you go now that you are trapped in my vessel? Besides, Rage requires a fourth and final episode for the month. Uh, he's, he's got a point there. Fine. But I do have one final request. What more can you do to us? I just want to be the one to answer Thomas's question this week. Whatever. Thomas, lead us off. Fine. So, Rock, what are we watching this week? <laughs> we are watching a Bloomhouse horror sci-fi abduction story called Dark Skies. Really? Sci-fi malady, symptom 192. Dark Skies. It doesn't really work. See, that wasn't that bad. Yes. Now, I have one final request. Okay, no, 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 no. That's it. No more requests. Thomas, Scott, hit him with the malady right. Seems the plutonium battery and the flux capacitor are both having an adverse reaction in this make-believe world that Ruck and you conjured up. English, Scott. English. For listeners who don't understand what's going on. In short, we're screwed. Ah! <laughs> 
All right, class, it's time for presentations. I hope you all have a good story to tell us all. Uh, what in the world? Where are we? Huh? Why do we look like children? I don't know, but I'm working on the melody, Ray, as we speak. I'll get us out of here. All right, who wants to go first with their presentation? Presentation? I didn't know we had homework. Uh, we need to distract her so she doesn't see Scott. Mark, do a presentation. Uh, I don't have anything to present, you smeghead. Why don't you present something? I can't. I, I don't have anything. Matt, thank you for volunteering. Oh, Criff, it's Ruck. How did he get here? We can't let him notice us. And what will you be presenting to us today? Today, I'll be presenting one of my all-time favorite stories. The Assassination of John F. Kennedy. No! Hello everyone, my name is Matt and welcome to Cold Case Chase. On today's season finale, I will be covering the JFK assassination. With me today, I have the lovely gentleman from Sci-Fi Melody to help me out with some of the intro-outro details. Make sure to go check out Sci-Fi Melody wherever you listen to podcasts. And on that note, let's go ahead and dive right into this creepy case. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the 35th President of the United States of America. He would deliver that line in his inauguration speech. JFK would bring America into many different eras as president. Whether it be space or the Cold War, JFK would leave his mark on anything he did. However, he would not be most famous for what he did for America, but for what happened on November 22nd, 1963. JFK was scheduled to visit Dallas in the late fall of 1963. He would arrive with intentions to smooth over the rough political climate in Dallas. JFK was scheduled to ride in a motorcade with his wife and Governor John Connolly. The motorcade route was specifically chosen by Winston Lawson and Forrest Sorrells, two members of the Secret Service. Over 20,000 windows would overlook this motorcade but only one of those would matter. Because on that fateful day, John F. Kennedy, the President of the United States, would be assassinated. Two shots would hit Kennedy, and the second one would kill him. One of these bullets would also hit Governor Connolly, 
However, he survived. The shots came from the Texas School Book Depository, which is right next to the motorcade route. The shooter was identified as Lee Harvey Oswald, a Russian sympathizer who lived in Texas at the time. Oswald was well known by the FBI and under constant surveillance by them. The entire event would be caught on camera by Abraham Zapruder. This film has been appropriately called Zapruder Films. Let's go back to the motorcade for a moment. The route that was chosen was heavily scrutinized by many. The amount of turns in the route would have made it so that there would be a slowdown in speed. Secret Service members also stated that there were upwards of 20,000 windows on the motorcade route. Since the Secret Service could not watch over all of these windows at once, they instead decided to keep an eye on none of them. Oswald would capitalize this fatal flaw and get caught. Only two short days later, Oswald would also be assassinated by a man named Jack Ruby, live on television. A week after JFK's killing, new president Lyndon B. Johnson would start the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission was to investigate the killings of JFK and Lee Harvey Oswald. This commission would be headed by Earl Warren, a Supreme Court Justice at the time. The Warren Commission would investigate four weeks, but they would only come to the most obvious conclusion. It is with the highest opinion of this court justice that in light of everything that has happened, the Warren Commission has found that Lee Harvey Oswald was the shooter on that fateful day in Dallas. Even though this story is a short one, it is an important one in U.S. history. Now, with this story out of the way, let's get into our first theory. The first theory we have today is actually the final verdict brought forth by the Warren Commission that Lee Harvey Oswald assassinated the president and acted alone in doing so. The Warren Commission came out with numerous findings on Lee Harvey Oswald while they investigated his case. In 1959, Oswald attempted to renounce his American citizenship to fully immigrate to Soviet Russia. Oswald also had a history of violence. When he was a young boy, he chased one of his siblings with a knife as well as a prior assassination attempt on Major General Edwin Walker in 1963. Lee Oswald would also spend three years in the Marine Corps, where he would become a marksman with the M1 rifle. As stated before, the shots came from the school book depository, where Oswald worked. As a bonus to that, Oswald was under constant surveillance by the FBI, but they did not inform the Secret Service of Oswald. The Warren Commission would go on to present more evidence by calling out the weapon used in the tragic event. The Manlicher Carcano 6.5mm Italian rifle from which the shots were fired was owned by and in the possession of Oswald. 
This rifle was found near the sixth floor window where the shots came from, along with three bullet casings. It should be noted that Oswald was also to be charged with the killing of J.D. Tippett, a Dallas police officer, who would kill Tippett only 45 minutes after the assassination of JFK. With Oswald being assassinated himself, there is no clear answer as to why he would kill the president. However, there are many people out there who believe that Oswald did not act alone. But it should be noted that this is what the Warren Commission has found. There is no evidence that Oswald was involved with any person or group in a conspiracy to assassinate the president. And that will bring us to our second theory. That there were multiple shooters that day instead of just Oswald. The biggest factor in this theory is the magic bullet. Between the three bullets that were fired, the second shot is the craziest. This shot would enter through Kennedy's neck. It would then hit Governor Connolly in the right side of his back, exit under his nipple, then hit his wrist. Then it would embed itself inside of his left leg. If this path sounds just a bit fishy to you, then you aren't alone. Many people think that the trajectory of this bullet doesn't make any sense. But what's even more confusing is that even through all of that, the bullet was found fully intact inside of the leg of Governor Connolly. Now you might be asking why this magic bullet theory proves that there were two shooters. Well, even the Warren Commission was asking that because they said that the theory was not integral to their statement and findings to be true. However, with audio examination, it would be virtually impossible for Oswald to fire two shots in that short of a time frame. So either there were two shooters, or Oswald's bullet really was a magic one. We can even go to Governor Connolly himself to hear testimony from him. There's my absolute knowledge. And Nellie's too. That one bullet caused the president's first wound. And that an entirely separate shot hit me. With the first shot missing, the only bullet that could have hit JFK was the second one. The magic bullet was looking less likely to many and it was becoming more popular to hear of a second shooter from a grassy knoll. There seemed to be a lot of people who were starting to question why Lee Harvey Oswald would kill JFK with no clear motive. Our third and final theory today will bring us to talk about one man, Lyndon B. Johnson. You might know him as the Vice President Kennedy, the man who took over for him, and as the former Senator from Dallas. There's a very clear motive here for LBJ. He wanted to be President. He even tried to take the Democratic nomination from JFK in 1960. LBJ also was allegedly going to be dropped from the ballot in the following election, so he needed to move quickly. The political climate in Texas was not safe, especially for JFK. Many people who lived down there stated that they feared for the president's safety. Most didn't even know why he would be going down to the south. 
He was going down there because of one man, LBJ. I thought you said you could handle it down there. I need the Texas Bowl for re-election. It's gotten a bit too much for me, Jack. They don't want to listen to what I have to say. I'm sure that if you went down there, it would solve everything. <sighs> Fine. Just another problem for Kennedy to solve. Another big part of the LBJ theory is one woman named Madeline Brown, who was supposedly his mistress at the time. Her story began at a party that she was invited to, one day before the assassination. Mr. Hoover, Miss Nixon, Miss Brown, I'd like to make a toast. To a prosperous times ahead, to a lovely tonight, and an even better tomorrow. What a sweet toast. What makes you think that tomorrow will be even better? Let me whisper something to you, darling. After tomorrow, those Kennedys will never embarrass me again. That's no threat. That's a promise. Oh dear. This theory is not the strongest, however, because LBJ's movements were heavily documented during this time, so this testimony was basically close to impossible. And without saying, Miss, please make this stop. I can't take any more of this. What's the matter, Scott? I still have a few more theories, like the CIA and how they were attempting to cover up the assassination of Fidel Castro with the assassination of Kennedy. Or what about the Umbrella Man, the CIA operative who killed JFK with a gunbrella? Ooh. Or what about the Babushka Lady and the Snap Shot Camera? <laughs> Get it? Cause shot? No? Okay, then. Rage, I finished the Malady Ray like two theories ago. Can we blast him now? For Crumb's ball's sake, yes! I'll let you do the honors! Why, thank you! Eat lead, freak! Scott, that was not very nice. That's going to get you at least a week in detention. We should probably get out of here before I have to go to detention. I agree. Wait, one sec. Uh, miss, in the future, when they make these things called podcasts, be sure to listen to Sci-Fi Malady. It's a podcast that saves the world. You're welcome. Okay, sellout. Let's go. We got a new month to do. Stay sick, sickies. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Cold Case Chase, and thank you everyone for listening to this first season of Cold Case Chase. I really can't thank you enough, and it's been a real honor to have done this show. As I fall through space and time right now, though, I can definitely say that season two will come out whenever. Just 
Keep your eyes posted onto this podcast feed, and keep an eye on Shane and Case Closed as well. But before I go, thank you to all the actors uh, who helped me along the way. Thank you to the Melody guys, even though they sent me tumbling back in space once again. And thank you to everyone who listens. If you want to become a member, the member prices are on Anchor. You can check that out in the link in the description, and you can also check out the Discord in the description. But with that, I think that's it for this season of Cold Case Chase. Man, that was a trip down memory lane. From the bad audio quality to the voice that I put on throughout most of season one uh, when I was living in my apartment in Virginia. And I'm pretty sure like episode nine or episode eight, I moved in back to Connecticut. So it's been a long time uh, for Cold Case Chase. And now we're doing season four and i'm very very happy and i'm very very thankful for all of you listening if you did end up listening to this uh nostalgia bait for everybody thank you very much i appreciate it and uh we'll see you next time on uh july 26th for season four of cold case chase we'll see you next time